I'm really bummed that I can't be there with you this morning to bring this message, the, the last lesson in our Exodus series, The Journey to Freedom. But I'm glad I can bring you the message through this video. And uh, as we look at one of the last texts, one of the saddest texts in Exodus, we're gonna see ourselves, see what we can learn from it and see how it points to the great love of a great God and how that's most, how that's best demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ. So we're gonna be in Exodus chapters 32 through 34 this morning. And before we get there, I want to just tell you quickly something that I like to do. Maybe you've seen me do this at a potluck or a church gathering before. It's just uh, something I do because I think it's funny. And it's whenever somebody makes a comment about some cupcakes that I didn't make, like, ooh, look at those good looking cupcakes that somebody brought. I say, yeah, I made those, even though I didn't. Uh, it's funny. It's uh, Maybe you don't think it's funny. It's uh, not true, but it's just a goof that I like to do. I especially like to do it, one, if the person who actually made them is within earshot. So like if Deanne made some, some delicious desserts, someone goes like, ooh, who made brownies? I said, I made those. Thanks a lot. Deanne, what? It's funny. See, it's a funny joke. Uh, second, it's, it's also funny if it's clearly a store-bought item. Like if somebody picks up some cheesecake with a Safeway label on it in Safeway commercial packaging. And someone goes, ooh, look at that cheesecake. Yeah, I made it. Anyway, I think it's funny. It's something funny that I do. Um, it's a good joke. You're welcome to steal it if you want at the next potluck. The reason I was thinking about that this week as I was listening to the texts from Exodus 32 is because Israel is going to try to give credit where credit is not do. They actually are going to break commandments one and two in the process, worshiping other gods and making and worshiping idols. Moses and the Lord haven't been heard from on Mount Sinai in quite a while. Actually, it's not been quite a while. It's been a short time and they get scared and they say, ah, we need some gods to worship. Who's going to take care of us? And, uh, they create false gods, and they say, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. They'll forget about Yahweh as quickly as you possibly can. Let's read this story together. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. We got kind of a sad story about the wishy-washy, fickle nature of the Israelites. God's Moses are gone for a little bit, and they say, ah, they panic. They create these false gods. It seems we're so familiar with this story, we sometimes forget the severity of how this betrayal must have affected God. I mentioned a few weeks ago, Bobby Valentine describing uh, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel saying, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. That's kind of like a wedding vow. That's saying like, yes, we are on board for this commitment, this relationship. We are all in. And he, Bobby Valentine says that uh, the covenant at Sinai is like a U-Haul truck backing up to Mount Sinai and God moving all of his stuff in and then coming down. And in the tabernacle, which we get so much description of in Exodus, dwelling among his people. This is the heart for God. He wants to be with his people. And so if the covenant that was made with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and again reiterated in Exodus 24 is like the wedding ceremony, then what Bobby Valentine says is that this betrayal, the golden calf incident, is like if the bride ran off with the bellboy at the hotel on the wedding night. It's heartbreaking. It's a terrible betrayal. God's anger burns against his people. Why would Israel do something so egregious so soon after making a solid commitment to the Lord? We wonder, and we can come up with some reasons because we understand our own fickle nature when it comes to commitments in our lives. Maybe they did it because they were just scared. Moses and God had been gone a significant amount of time for them to feel vulnerable and exposed. They felt like they needed something. We know what that feels like. As followers of Jesus, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight, but we can only do that for so long. After a while, you just feel like you're groping around in the darkness saying, I don't know what's what. I need some solid ground to stand on. Maybe you've been praying about something and you're not seeing any evidence that things are changing, that your prayers are making any difference, or that being in Christian community makes a difference from not being among other believers who are supposed to carry us in our times of trouble. We know what it's like to be tempted in times of weakness and to turn to something that's more tangible. So maybe they did it because they were scared. Maybe they did it because other people were doing it. Remember, the Israelite camp was huge. It was a, just a ton of people. Information probably traveled very slowly. Uh, there were maybe just people who simply didn't know what had transpired or what was about to go on. They didn't get the information soon enough. 
It's kind of like that scene from the, the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, where there's people listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but they're way far in the back of the crowd and they can't really hear what he's saying very well. And they're talking amongst themselves. That makes it even harder. It's like, what did he say? I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. Well, why, why what's so special about the cheesemakers? <laughs> Maybe that was a factor. They didn't have the, uh, the information that they needed. Maybe there was a telephone game effect. Hey, we're worshiping these gods now. Wait, I thought we were worshiping this Yahweh that we committed to. Nah, things have changed. Just go along with it. Okay. That shrug is a pretty uh, damning shrug. We can relate to that in our lives. Sometimes we just go along with something that just sounds a little more uh, local, a little easier. Other people are doing it. Do we want to think about it? Do we want to adjust our lives around it? We just go along with it. Uh, uh. We have a tendency to do that. If they're doing it, it must be okay. But we're reminded in Psalm 1 that it's the wicked who are easily swayed. They're blown here and there by the winds of change. But it's the righteous who are firmly rooted like, like streams that are planted or like roots that are planted by streams of water. Another reason that Israelites broke their covenant disobeyed the Lord is because they wanted to. It says they got up early in the morning and started uh, engaging in revelry. Now that's just kind of a broad, all-purpose term for uh, anything you can imagine that was immoral, they were doing it. It's basically like the, the ancient version of spring break. All right, nobody's looking. We can kind of get away with whatever we want to. Wow, these gods seem a lot more permissive than Yahweh with his, his Ten Commandments and his... Uh, 42, 613 commandments like we talked about. This can happen in our lives too. When our desire becomes greater than our commitment, then our relationships become damaged. When our desire for physical or emotional relationships outside of marriage uh, becomes too strong. When our desire for substance abuse becomes stronger than our commitment to faithfulness. When our desire for entertainment or for pleasure or for self-gratification becomes too strong. When the needs of self win out over the needs of others, uh, then these things in our lives become idols. Just like the golden calf was literally an idol. The things that we are tempted by, things that we are drawn to become idols in our lives. I did a sermon series a few years back called No Other Gods, and it was based on the book Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Tim Keller, you've heard me talk about him a lot. I actually got word this morning that he passed away. He had a battle with pancreatic cancer, and he died this morning, uh, which is a bummer. He was a great teacher, such a faithful man, and I recommend anything he's written uh, in book form or online or just look up some YouTube videos of Tim Keller. I would check those out. But he, he wrote a book about idolatry and how the things in our lives, the ordinary things, the good things, they're not even sinful and bad things, but how the good things become the great things and they become more important than our commitment to the Lord, that's when they become idols. Things that we wouldn't expect we could even call idols, like you can make an idol out of your family. Well, what's wrong with loving my family? Well, nothing, but if that becomes the thing that you're sacrificing your service for, sacrificing your, your relationship with the Lord for, when that becomes an idol in your life that you're just getting your value from or depending on in an unhealthy way, then it becomes an idol. Love, which God created, which we're supposed to experience in a certain context, can become an idol in our life. Chasing after money, we all know, can become an idol. Success or power or reputation, all of these things are easy idols in our lives if we let them. 
And as we start to worship and follow these idols, we start to do what the Israelites did. And we start to give them credit for the things we have in our lives. Instead of praising God, the creator, we say we worship and we praise the creation. We praise our own ingenuity. Like, wow, I'm going to worship my own brain because I'm really smart. I really did a good job figuring this out. I'm a really hard worker. Uh, it's kind of a fine line between being thankful to God for the things we have and disregarding God and just taking the things we have and assuming that they are the center of our lives. They're not. And the result of us making idols of the gifts that God gives us in our lives is uh, God becomes understandably angry at our unfaithfulness. We have to be careful here. We don't often like to talk about an angry God. Isn't God supposed to be forgiving? Well, he is. Isn't God supposed to be loving? Yes. Isn't God supposed to be patient and long-suffering? Yes. And God is all of those things. But God's anger is an important concept to understand. One, we need to understand that God doesn't get angry because he wants the credit we're giving the idols in our lives. God is not petty. God is not like, ooh, I did that. How come they're not giving me bonus points for saying that I brought them out of Egypt? That is not why God is upset. God is upset the way that an angry parent is upset when a child continues to make destructive decisions. Any parent who has walked with a child, especially an adult child who has made destructive decisions, harmful decisions, wrong-headed decisions that have gotten them stuck in a terrible situation, knows that it's not about getting credit. The thing the parent does not care about is whether or not the child comes back and says, oh, you were right, I should have listened. That is the farthest thing from a concerned parent's mind. They want their child to be well. They want their child to be safe. It breaks their heart. And that's where this anger comes from. It can infuriate them. It can make them say, you know what? I've helped you so many times. I don't even know how to help you anymore. I'm just going to let you take the broad road that leads to destruction and see what happens. That's kind of what we get from God here. He tells Moses, leave me alone. I don't want you to talk me out of my anger. It's burning and I just, uh, I know that I'm going to change my mind, but I just, I'm, uh, I'm upset right now because my great love, my great concern for my people who have so quickly turned from me and have worshiped things that are worthless, things that cannot rescue them, things that cannot provide life for them. They are making them the most important things. Hmm. God even says, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to let their greed and their pride consume them. I'm going to let them be destroyed. I'm going to hold back the protection that I've been giving them for so long. If you want to go down that broad road that leads to destruction, I won't stand in your way. But then we have Moses talking God out of it. And this section, I always get a little concerned. I always wonder, is this really God just out of control with rage and like Moses has to talk him down and remind him of who he is? Or is this just the way the story is told so that we can better understand that we're dealing with a God who has real emotions and has a real concern and is in a real relationship with God's people. Is this literal or is this more for our benefit? I wonder. Did God really forget his people though? I think that would be really, really hard to believe, especially in light of what Greg helped us focus on in last week's lesson. Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. God says to Israel. 
I think a lot of how this story from, from the Exodus and from Mount Sinai, this brokenhearted God, a lot of how it was recorded and transmitted was to get us to see the damage that an unfaithful relationship does. And just to see how fierce is God's love for God's people. There are going to be consequences for the unfaithfulness of Israel. Uh, wrongdoers will be punished. If you read on in chapters 33 and 34, it's, it's not pretty. But ultimately, God lives up to his own self-description that he gives Moses during this time. What we've referred to in the past as the God Creed and what is referenced throughout the rest of Scripture. God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parent to the third and fourth generation. We're reminded here and we see and we've experienced ourselves that God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he is a God of forgiveness. As we've said before, God never gave up on his people, though he thought about it, though their actions broke his heart and drove him to this oh, frustration and rage that only a concerned parent can understand. God didn't give up on his people. He didn't give up on them when they sinned in the garden. He didn't give up on his people with the Tower of Babel incident. He didn't give up on his people with the flood. He didn't give up at Mount Sinai. He didn't give up on his people during the time of the kings when they just made a mess of their own nation and did wrong again and again and again. And he didn't give up on his people when they were conquered and sent into exile and returned home. In all of these instances, we see the Lord providing a way for his people to come back. Like we said two weeks ago, the story of scripture is the story of a God who wants nothing else but to dwell with his people, to be with them, to live together and move together and work together and be together. And we see this in Jesus. God loves the world so much that he sends his only son. In Christ, we see God's desire to dwell with his people. In Christ, we see the ongoing and inexhaustible love of God. And in Christ, we see the forgiveness of of sin. We glimpse the maternal love of God in Jesus' comments when he laments the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It's the same brokenheartedness. What are you guys doing? How can you get it so wrong? As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records the heart that Jesus has for Jerusalem with these words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And this great parental love of God was best demonstrated on the cross, the cross of Jesus, laying down his own life for the sake of a wayward people. So what about us? What can we learn from this story? What do we do with this? Well, on one level, 
I just want us to be reminded of the fierce love that God has for his people, that God loves always, and that God still loves with that ferocity for all of us today. We should know that we are loved, and if we don't know that, we need to return to these stories, return to these pages of scripture, return to the cross and say, oh, there it is. It was always there. God continues to make a way. We can also learn from others' mistakes, though we don't always do that. We may recognize in the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, oh yeah, I do that too. I chase after idols myself. It's kind of silly. We need to acknowledge that and say, all right, maybe we take this moment to identify there's one particular idol in my life right now. The one thing that I have elevated above every other thing in my life. I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I'm willing to turn my back on my relationship with the Lord, my commitment to following Jesus. Just if I can just have this one thing that I think I really need. And to hear God say, that's not what you need. I am who I am. I am the only God you'll ever need. Trust me, follow me. Let me love you. Let me lead you. Let me live with you. And it's a reminder that we can give credit where credit is due. Because as funny as I might think it is to take credit for a dessert that I did not make or even purchase, uh, it's not funny when we lead our lives that way. We need to give God credit in our lives. We need to give him his due praise, the, the dedication, the loyalty that we have pledged in Christ. With our baptism, we said along with Israel, we will do everything the Lord has said. And it's a good time to consider, have we done that? Have we structured our lives around that commitment? Or is it something that we sort of abandon quickly like Israel did with the golden calf incident there? It's a good time to recognize idols in our lives and put them in their proper place and just worship the Lord to walk in step with God's Holy Spirit. I want to end by uh, sharing another Bible project video with you that describes God's slow to angerness. That's something we look in the pages of scripture and say, well, for being slow to anger, God sure gets mad a lot. We talked a little bit about that. This video helps explain what that term means and how it is very fitting for uh, the God of Israel and the God of Jesus and the God that we worship today. So take a look at this video. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose. That is, their slow anger. 
Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given 10 chances to let Israel go free. But after the 10th refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites. And so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him. And we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures, like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations. And so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's anger is being revealed against human evil. And then three times he says what that looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But Paul also says, God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil. And it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. He would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions upon himself. In Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger.